0: But here's what I want to do. We're going to start in verse 14, because that's where we left off. But let's back up a couple of verses, starting in verse 12. Read with me, and then we're going to jump into the word this morning. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So at the descent and filling of the Holy Spirit... The people were wondering, what does this mean? So there was almost a division in the people. Some were asking, what does this mean? What's going on? What is this sound? How are they speaking in all these different tongues that we can understand? And then the other half split themselves off and rejected what was happening, saying it's nothing more than they just got filled with wine. They're drunk out of their minds, and they're just talking a bunch of babble. No pun intended. But that's kind of where we're at and so peter now is going to stand up and that's where we pick up in verse 14 uh reading through verse 15 excuse me peter stands up with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day so here Peter stands, as, as you can see again, it says he stands with the eleven. So really all twelve disciples stand up to address the people, but Peter speaking on their behalf. That's important to understand. Many churches today will give credence to one apostle over the other because he's more important than the others because he remains in Scripture and the others disappear from Scripture. Well, that's not the case. We see it right here. Peter standing with the eleven. Remember, that 11 was filled out, as we talked about, with Matthias filling in for Judas Iscariot and replacing him. So you've got all 12 standing there ready to declare what's going on. Also, maybe a partial fulfillment of Jesus' own words to Peter. We have to go back to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, 18, remember Jesus said to Peter, says, hey, Peter, you, on this rock, I will build my church. So here is that prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter, using him in a mighty way, saying, you are going to help establish my church. Which is a beautiful thing. So Peter speaking on behalf of the disciples. And so what the first thing he does, he quickly, immediately dismisses this notion that everybody's just drunk out of their mind. So what does it mean by the third hour? Well, if we look at that in our language, it really was 9 o'clock in the morning that's about what time this took place so right about now Okay, anybody here drunk out of their mind babbling stumbling no because it's not culturally acceptable to be that drunk that early in the morning in that day or we should hope and pray not even in our day to be that out of your mind drunk that early in the morning just doesn't make sense but remember also where were they they were in jerusalem celebrating pentecost a high holy religious day why would anybody be that inebriated wouldn't make sense so he just dismisses that right off the bat but he then proceeds to speak to and lean heavily on scripture and that's what i love about this so yes this is peter's sermon peter preaching to the people okay but utilizing scripture that he had To clarify what just took place, and that's really what we're going to get into this morning. So you are hearing a sermon on a sermon that was preached long ago. So let's look at that. Read with me, verses 16 through 21 in Acts 2. He goes right into Scripture, and he quotes the prophet Joel. blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a lot in here. But what does he do immediately? He utilizes Scripture to answer their questions. And what does he do and he's talking about the prophetic word of Joel? That talked about the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. And so what do we see here in what Peter uses to define what the Holy Spirit is going to do? He's going to fall on everyone. So we immediately see that the Holy Spirit does not discriminate in any way. Because look at the terminology that Peter uses. Who does the Spirit fall on? He talks about sons and daughters. So in this case, the youth of the day. He didn't just say male and female, he said sons and daughters, specifically talking about the young people of the day and our day. This applies to us as well. If it applied to Peter and the people 2,000 years ago, it applies to us today. And we'll clarify that. But sons and daughters, the youth of our day, can play a very significant role in proclaiming the gospel through the power of the Spirit. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and faith, in purity. Proverbs 20, 29 says the glory of young men is their strength. We need to understand the significance that the youth will play in our society. This is why we as a church support student venture club and ministries. It's why I'm involved and go to campus and, and bring the gospel to the schools and these kids because there is so much strength in the youth of our day. There is so much zeal and passion in our youth that we just want them to open their mouth and speak and be used for the glory of God on their campus and in society. The youth are important. It's why, and I'd ask you to pray with me, As we pray and as the Lord would develop and raise up somebody here at Refuge City to help us develop a youth program for our church and for this area. We're right next door to a a middle school. We've got contacts at all the high schools and middle schools in the area. We can see a massive, massive display of spirit-empowered youth in our area. But we need that help, so pray with me on that. Next the Holy Spirit in the last days is going to fall on male and female. Again, there is no division there. In fact, in that day, in a patriarchal society that they lived in, that was probably a very welcome word to the ladies. We see that the Holy Spirit does not discriminate against social class status. Males and female servants, he talked about. I tell you what, with our, our uh, ministry, and working with the anchor and the homeless population, I tell you what, and I say this, With all that I can. I have heard some of the best scriptural truth come from those living on the street as much as I have those that have come from the pulpit of a higher status. The Holy Spirit does not discriminate. Just because some people have money and others don't, the Holy Spirit isn't going to look at somebody that doesn't have money that's living on the street and go, nah, go ahead and get a job, get some money, get a roof over your head, and then I will baptize you. No. No, it's pretty apparent when you put it that way, when you look at it that way, no, the spirit does not discriminate in any sense of the word. Remember what we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Right? If we go on, what the, the future apostle Paul would speak to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. He says, For as many as you were, excuse me, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. And have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends on everybody that calls on the name of the Lord. And that's the beautiful thing. Now we need to separate out a little bit of what Peter is saying. He's using the prophet Joel to speak, and he mentions something specifically. Now that comes from Joel chapter 2, if you want to read it. It's the same exact words, Joel 2, 28 through 32. But in Joel 2, he says, in the last days. Now, a lot of people get hung up on that. Well, he, well none of this is really makes sense because the last days means when Jesus comes back. Well, when is Jesus coming back? Somebody go ahead and answer that. Exactly. They didn't know then and we don't know now. When Jesus will return. So what was in the mind of the disciples when Jesus ascended? What did that usher in? The last days. They had no clue when Jesus was going to return. Remember he told them when we studied in in chapter 1, don't bother yourself with the time and seasons. Don't worry about that. Do what I've called you to do. So we don't know when he's coming back. All we know is what scripture tells us. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52. In the twinkling of an eye. Just like that, he's going to return. So one, we need to be prepared. If we don't have a relationship with Christ, those of us that do have a relationship with Christ, that should provide us plenty of motivation to do what we've been called to do. To get out there and proclaim the gospel, to preach the good news to a world that needs him because we don't know when Christ will return. That's got to be our motivation. But Joel speaks to that in the the last days the second coming of of Jesus Christ, that Christ is promised to return, but we don't know when. So if they believe they were living in the last days, so do we. In fact, here's the beautiful thing, that when you look at Scripture, the disciples who would be inspired by the Spirit to write their letters spoke to it. So what do we see? In 1 John, so the disciple John, the apostle John would speak to it in chapter 2, verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Peter would speak to it later on in his writing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. The Apostle James would speak to it in his epistle in chapter 5, verse 3. You have laid up treasures for yourself in these days last days and then the future apostle paul would speak to it as well when he wrote to little pastor timothy in 1 timothy 3 verse 1 excuse me second timothy 3 1 but understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty so all of the apostles understood that in the absence of christ when he ascended that ushered in the last days now this confuses and, and causes a lot of people Some hesitancy about God's Word. So you're telling me that for over 2,000 years we've been living in the last days? Yes, we have. Because we don't put a time frame on God. How many thousands of years did He exist and do His work in ministry prior to the arrival of Christ? Thousands of years in our understanding. So we don't determine His time frame. We just need to understand that it is the last days. Now, will we see him return? I hope so. And if we don't, that's okay. My name is secure in that book of life. But that doesn't stop me from fulfilling what God has called me to do, which is to go out and deliver the good news and let others know Jesus is coming soon. That's what Peter's doing through this message to the people in Jerusalem. But a key verse, if you highlight anything, circle anything, underline anything in your Bible, underline or highlight verse 21. Such an important piece of scripture and word to them and us. Verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we're going to look at that in a little more detail that line later on in just a minute but what an important word for everybody to understand everyone because you hear so often nowadays people say well i just need to get right before i go to church i told the story before about joe and i were walking into church one morning and there was a homeless gentleman that was uh riding his bike or or coming out of, of an area and And we invited him to church, and he said, no, I'm all messed up, I'm dirty, I'm bleeding, I just fell off my bike, I need to go and get cleaned up before I come to church. And the word to him was, no, you don't. You are welcome, as you are. Understand that, no matter your social class status, no matter your gender, no matter your political affiliation, I don't care where you fall on cultural and societal uh, lines, you are welcome in this place. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I need you to understand the, the, the terminology in there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. We need to define that term. And we'll do so in, in just a minute. But let's read on. Verses 22 through 36. Peter goes on to declare why salvation in Jesus' name is the only way. He says, Men of Israel, Concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. If we pause there for a minute, there is Peter going to scripture once again that was psalm chapter 16 verses 8 through 11 but he goes on to say brothers i may say this to you with confidence about the patriarch david that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that god had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection Of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he goes on not only to say, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but let's talk about this, Lord. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. Now, a little bit of context. Remember who is Peter talking to? The cultural significance of his audience, Jewish. Men and women gathered together for Pentecost. What did they believe? Who were they still waiting for? Their Messiah. And they obviously did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because Peter reminded them, this Jesus that you crucified and killed, He is the one. And you missed Him. (laughs) Very Very plain and clear, right? So Jesus was proven... To be empowered by God through his miracles, his signs, all the wonders that he did. To which they were witnesses of. Not just the disciples, but the people Peter was talking to. They knew that about Jesus. But don't forget the time frame of this. It's not as if they're talking about this Jesus who these people never saw or heard that happened hundreds of years ago. Do you know the time frame of what we're talking about? They crucified Christ seven weeks ago. Let's put that in some context. Does that bring a little understanding to this message that Peter's giving? This is only seven weeks after Christ was crucified. And three days later, he rose again, and now Peter is talking about this. So a little bit of context might be, maybe, that some of the same people that were in Jerusalem at Passover, crying for the death of Christ to free Barabbas instead of Christ, crucify him, crucify him, are now in front of Peter going, Who is this Jesus you're talking about? Is he the Messiah? So it's just a seven-week time period. Interesting when you look at that, right? But, so they knew. Many people saw the signs and wonders of Christ. They knew about his miracles. They knew he was a man of God. In fact, if we go back to what we talked about last week in Matthew chapter 12, this was made known when Jesus had healed a demon-oppressed man, said who was blind and mute was brought to jesus and jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people so there were many witnesses were amazed and said can this be the son of david now i use that miracle because it connects what peter is talking about to them now referring to david's writing in psalm 16. they knew there was going to be one that would take the throne of david so in, during Jesus' ministry, there were many then that were wondering, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? But don't forget who else was in the crowd. The Pharisees. And what did they do with Jesus' signs and wonders? They passed him off as being filled with the devil. They said only by Beelzebub or the devil, the prince of demons, that this man can cast out Demons. But that's not the only example we have. Really quickly, if we go to John chapter 3, verse 2, another Pharisee comes to meet with Jesus by night. His name is Nicodemus. And he sits with Jesus because he is curious. He's wondering. And one line from that conversation, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, knowing he's a teacher, says, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So there was eyewitness account to the fact that Jesus performed these miracles, these signs, these wonders. So There was no question there. So regardless of whether you reject him as the devil or some like Nicodemus and many others that were genuinely seeking answers, Every single person, when it comes to Christ, is brought to a decision point. There's a decision to be made. You either reject Him as just some teacher, just some prophet, or you accept Him because He is who He said He is, and you believe in who He said He is. It's one or the other. You either accept Him or reject Him but everybody's brought to that decision point. His ministry, his death, his resurrection was not coincidence, Peter says. It was ordained by God from the beginning of time. It was his definitive ordained plan to deliver him up to be crucified. This was the only way for a sinful, imperfect people to experience redemption. That a sinless, perfect God would take their place. That was the only way for man to be redeemed from his sin. And this was the Christ that Peter looked at his audience and said, you crucified. It was God's plan, but you crucified him. That's an important thing we need to understand. I want to make that very clear to us this morning. God has a plan. A divine, ordained, perfect plan for all of mankind. He is over all, controls all, determines everything but allows man to make his choice. One perfect example of that is the life of Judas Iscariot. We even learned prior in Acts one, that Judas Iscariot was part of that perfect plan of God to use him to deliver up Christ. But we also talked about how Judas made his own choice. He made the decision to offer up Christ for those 30 pieces of silver making his choice in what he wanted to do, but yet it was still God's plan. See how that works together? God knows. He didn't create inanimate objects to worship him. He didn't create a bunch of robots to worship him and to carry out his plan. He created mankind in his image and gave them a mind, gave them a choice to live their life and either choose him or reject him. This is the message that Peter is giving. To these jewish people but again continuing to provide proof after proof after proof that the individual that they delivered up to be crucified was the messiah let's look at verses 32 through 35 that Jesus' death was ordained but his resurrection was proven this is why he talks about and uses david's words That David here, you see his his tomb, his body, it's with us today. So he obviously wasn't talking about himself in Psalms. He was talking about Jesus Christ. So in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, quoting scripture, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I came across this quote that I loved basically it says a higher court in heaven overturned the decision of the lower court on earth it was impossible for death to hold christ because he committed no sins himself he had not personally earned the wages of sin as it says in romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is death but he voluntarily took upon himself the sins of others you see jesus is life John fourteen six I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, if I am life, that I cannot taste death. Therefore, it only makes sense that death couldn't hold him. He couldn't taste the sting of death. So here, what is Peter providing? One, prophetic proof. He speaks to Scripture, both Joel and King David. Prophetic proof that Christ had risen. Next, he provides them a reminder of the, the visual proof. That Jesus appeared to over 500, and he reminded them that we have seen, we stand here, all 12 of us, plus the other 100 and uh, whatever the math is behind me, that have been witnesses to Christ's resurrection. We have seen him alive. And then the Holy Spirit, proof. They're standing there listening to Peter because they themselves heard this sound and were wondering what is going on. What is this sound? What are these tongues that are being spoken that we can understand in our own language from where we come? Give us an understanding of what's happening. So all Peter does is he points them all right back to God. His ordained plan for Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Trinity word may not be mentioned in Scripture, but do you see it here? All three mentioned in one sermon. And again, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he brings the audience to a decision point. You decide. I have just told you in the scripture that you know that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is Lord. What are you going to do? So I answered your question, what does this mean? I told you what it means. Now what are you going to do? Like, let me ask you a couple questions for us here. I know we're talking about a sermon from 2,000 years ago, but how does this apply to us now? Because you might be sitting here, and I, all of you here might say, well, I've already made that decision. I know who my Lord is. I submitted my life to Him. So my question for you, as Peter provided them proof of who God is and who Christ is in their life, I'm asking you, what is the proof that you have in your life? For anybody else in your community, in your sphere of influence, that will provide them an understanding of who Christ really is. What proof can you provide them? Can you provide them scripture? Can you provide them that visual transformation in your life? And then bring them to a decision point And then let the Holy Spirit do His job. What proof can you provide to those around you that He's your Lord? What does that mean? We talked about that. That's an important word to understand. If you say that Christ is Lord, you are saying that He has supreme authority over all of my life. That He is my King. He is my ruler. That's what Lord means. Why was that an important word for the Jewish population? Because to them, Jesus was just a teacher, just a prophet. But to call him Lord, that if they accept that, they're saying that this was Christ. This was the Messiah that we had been waiting for. Let's finish this out. Verses 37 through 41. So when he heard this, excuse me, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What an amazing, amazing display of the Spirit being used. Now, I know you've heard me say it multiple times. What is God telling you? This is why we read God's word. Now that you've heard God's word, what did God teach you from his word? And then I always ask, what is he tasking you to do? So, very simply put, what does God want you to know? What does God want you to do? What are you going to do with this information? Do you just walk away with, hey, heard about a 2,000 year old sermon today? Great. Oh, There's more to it than that. What are you going to do with this information? I've already challenged you a little bit. Is there proof in your life that you can provide to those around you that Christ is your Lord? Those listening to Peter witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They asked about it. They listened to Peter's present God's Word and proof of who Jesus is. It says they were cut to the heart, meaning they were pierced. There was something so strong inside of them that was causing them to have a reaction because of what Peter had just shared. And that moment, the spirit was nudging them, grabbing them, bringing them to that decision point, saying, now make your choice. And that's why they asked, what do we do? Remember what they asked in verse 12? What does this mean? Peter gave them the meaning. Now they ask, What do we do? Essentially, what are they asking for? How can we be saved? What can we do? So Peter says, repent and be baptized. Again, I know that word repentance, we kind of might play that off as not needed for us anymore. Because we may have already accepted Christ as our Savior. We may have already done that initially. But is that something you can continue to do? Absolutely it is. But there's two aspects of repentance i want you to understand and clarify for us one it's a mental thing and two it's a physical thing so when we look at that concept of repentance which by the way don't forget this was the heart of jesus's ministry from the very onset when he walked onto the scene what, what were his first words that we are told in scripture in the gospels when he began his ministry when he comes on the scene jesus says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus was declaring from the onset of his ministry to repent. What does it mean? In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he would go on and say later on in Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So understand that number one, it's not an easy thing. And this concept of repentance is not something that we should just take lightly and oh okay I repent blah 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 let's go about my day. It's not an easy thing. Cuz one it's a mental thing. That repent means to turn, to run away, to move away and do all that you can mentally in your mind to say I will not participate in that again which separates me from my God. Amen. It is a mental choice what does it say in Romans 12? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because what does it say before? Do not be conformed to this world. Don't look the same as this world. Don't act the same as this world. Don't speak like this world. Don't do the things that this world does because this world is fixed on the things of the enemy, the devil. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think on the things of God. Think on the things above, not on the things of this earth. So we have to set it in our mind, I am no longer going to talk, act, or do the things that this world does. So it is a radical decision to look differently from the rest of this world. But it's a mental thing. I am no longer going to take part in what separates me from the holiness of God. And two, it's a physical action. We physically need to do and act anything in our power to do so to eliminate the things that are going to trigger that sin in our life. Remove them. And why is this difficult? Because you may be removing yourself from people. You may be removing yourself from friends. You may be removing yourself from family. You may be changing your entire lifestyle. Because what was no longer fits within the economy of God. That's not easy. And so what do you do? You have to go with those that are of like mind. That are pursuing the same holiness and righteousness and things of God. That's why this church exists. You have people that you can sit with. And be transformed with and pursue ministry with that's why we call this a family (laughs) because if you have to rid yourself and walk away from others because they're rejecting christ and you know you can't unless you think you're strong enough to maintain that relationship and bring christ to them that's one thing but if not then you find yourself in a family and get connected with a family, live life with a family that is pursuing the things of God. You have to take physical action through the Word of God. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. We need to get into His Word. You think, was it just a miraculous occurrence that Peter just happened to recall Joel and David and those Scriptures? No, he was familiar with the Word of God. He was living life with the Word of god but he was also in the scriptures often with christ reading those scriptures he was familiar with them and in that moment maybe the holy spirit reminded him of joel of david but we have to be in the word of god don't forget what it says also in galatians 5 25 if you're going to live by the spirit keep in step with the spirit continue to pursue the word of God and continue to pursue a life, a physical life with God. It's countercultural. It's radical. It's different. That's why we have a group of people to support you and support us all in that. He says, repent, but he also says, be baptized. Why is that such a radical word for this Jewish people? Because the words that Peter called them to do, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He was calling them to say, make a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, whom you crucified as just some guy, to now be baptized as declaring that he is your Lord. It was a radical step. It's no different for us today. Baptism is not just an opportunity to jump in a pool when it's a hot day. It is not a simple thing. It is a radical, physical display of what the Spirit has done in your life. Because you are telling the world around you, I live for Jesus Christ. He is my Lord God. I've submitted my life to Him. And therefore, calling all those who are witnesses to that baptism to hold you accountable to who you say you now are baptism is a radical thing and why it's one that we promote not to just do some religious thing but you are telling the world Christ is my Lord He is my my God and I'm going to live in such a way that honors His name in my life. So if you're saved then continue to repeat that gospel message to yourself on a daily basis. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, every day. Remember the gospel message and how you are to live your life. If you have done both of these things, if you have initially repented of your sins, accepted Christ as Lord and were baptized, are you off the hook? No, of course not. Then continue to pursue that deeper relationship holy relationship with Christ. And then I want you to walk away with this as well. Since we're listening to Peter give a sermon, let's read from Peter's epistle. We studied 1 Peter and 2 Peter a while ago. Let's remind ourselves of what it says in context of our message today, and we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, says this, Now, that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's interesting because what did Peter just do here? He stood up and he provided a defense for the hope that he had and the other apostles had. And he just gave it away. He's calling us to do the exact same thing. One, repent of your sins. Accept Christ as Lord. Be baptized, which you will by the Spirit in that moment, but physically take that action of baptism by water to show the world who is your Lord. And then he says, be prepared, which means you need to stay in the Word, pursue the things of God, And then if it's God's will and he presents that opportunity, provide that defense. You don't need to defend Christianity. You just need to give a reason for the hope that is in you and let the world know who Christ is to you. Bring people to that decision point and then let them make their choice. It's not up to you to make the choice. It's up to you just to get them to that point, to give them an understanding by your life, how you live, who God is to you. And in that, we'll see what God does. This day, I saw 3,000 people welcomed into the church. That building was starting to happen. And next week, we'll talk more about that process and what that looks like. Amen? Amen, let's pray.